It's episode 19 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Tristan Harris. He formerly had the title of design ethicist and product philosopher at Google, and is now one of the leaders of the Time Well Spent movement. We talk about ethics and design and how so much of what we do can so easily be characterized as manipulation, even with the best intentions. So let's get right to it. Do you remember the START conference? Uh, yeah, uh, that's right. Um, that's how we met originally. That's right. Uh, we actually, we, you and I met. You and I met at Food Camp when I was giving a demo to. I think it was uh, mm-hmm. John Markoff from the New York Times, mm, and right. you. And we were all, and Ed Williams, I think, was there, and we were, anyway, you invited me to, to speak at START. At START Conference. That was, that was, uh, there's actually a funny story behind that. So uh, my good friend forever, Brian Mason, and I uh, had the intention of starting a company. So I left Google, that was 2008, and uh, he, le- he was uh, running the business of Adaptive Path, the design agency we had started. And uh, the two right. of us got together and said, like, let's start a company. And I remember we were having a burrito. And he turns to me and he's like, so we're starting a company. I'm like, yeah, this is great. I'm super excited. He's like, what's it going to make? I'm like, the company? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Don't worry about it. He's like, no, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna worry about that. And so, and so we talked. And where we ended up was, well, tell you what, why don't we do a conference? We've done those in the past. We'll do a conference about quitting your job and starting companies. And maybe through that conference, right. we can figure out what we'll do with our company. And so we did that. And oh, you were, that was the story behind it. That's the story. Yeah, we had no idea what we were going to do. And eventually, so we started a company called Small Batch and with, with no ideas and did the start conference. And that helped us. We started thinking. Eventually, it turned out, you know, CSS fonts. Who knew? Uh, but that was six months later that we finally came across that idea and, and, and turned the company into Typekit. Right. I remember that because your first thing was a Wikipedia analysis That's tool right. or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. WikiRank. Yeah, WikiRank. Yeah. And I remember you speaking at 500 Startups about cargo cults and... Uh, and all of that. That's right. Uh, yeah, that was cool. That was like a, like a warm-up project for us. We were trying to uh, figure out, okay, how's technology changed in the years that we've been at Google? Um, because we were sort of shielded from a lot of things like Amazon Web Services and stuff like that inside Google. Um, but you were, and you had started a company called Apture, and you came, kind of described what it was like, what that journey was like, and things like that, which you eventually sold to Google as well. Three or something like that when we started the company, and yeah. when I met you, it presented at start. I was twenty-four, so yeah, that was that was a good long time ago, two thousand eight. Yeah, that's right. And so then, well, look, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you was uh, because I've come across your writing lately, and it has been sort of spot on, like exactly in the sweet spot of the kind of stuff I talk about on this podcast. Mm. Um, but and it was interesting to see your title when you were at Google as design ethicist and product philosopher. I have that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And So just tell me how you got into a role like that and what the role was and, and, and just what you did day to day. Well, so it's, it's interesting. Um, given that we were talking about um, our backgrounds and Start Conference and Apture, uh, our company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we were acquired by Google and I, I was the, you know, founder, CEO of the company. But uh, when we landed at Google, we joined um, some assistant projects, some sort of future-looking, how can Google be more assistive and help people get things done, uh, that landed us on the Inbox team, uh, which was, sorry, the, the future Gmail team, which later became Inbox, was right. released as Inbox. And I, this is, this is a, 
trying to figure out the shortest way to tell this story. <laughs> okay. um, but but this, is, this is actually all in the Atlantic article, if you've, if you've read that. But basically, I was um, getting a little bit disenchanted with the way that, you know, being in the room of the designers who are making the next version of Gmail, I just, I started just feeling like there's this missing conversation, uh, which is not, you know, how do you, how, what color should the title bar be? And, you know, how fast should it animate? And whether it should be what later became the mega list with this one list of, um, you know, emails that expands when you click on one versus if it's, the, you know, the side detail thing where you tap and it animates over to the left to the right. These were the kinds of questions that were being talked about. And I was like, there's, there's something missing. And I, I was probably, frankly, with, you know, speaking openly, a little bit depressed about just how much I was using technology and how much email I was getting and probably a little sense of being lost even. Uh, and just feeling like, when is technology actually adding up to, like, a net positive contribution to my life? Like, when is email, especially from the designers of email, mm -hmm. you know, being in the room with those people, when is email ever a net positive experience in our lives. Right. And I don't mean that to say that it, it, it isn't. I'm just saying, when is it actually a right. positive experience in our lives? And, and to me, to focus on these design details was kind of missing this much bigger question, especially since you, know, you would expect that the, the one people who would have that conversation would be the people in the room that I was with at Google. And, and this is not to shame them or anything like that. This is just a, a, a growing sense I think I'd had in the tech industry over the last few years, which is there's just all this narrative and all these founders tell their stories about, you know, we all want to make the world better and we want to help customer service do X and everyone wants to make things better. But there's a, there's a huge gap between the way that we talk about what we want our impact to be. And then the question is, what is our impact? And what are the right things to focus on? Right. So um, in saying that, I mean, to answer your question, uh, that led me to make this, this now semi-famous presentation um, that's just internal to Google, but it was called A Call to Minimize Distraction and Respect People's Attention. Uh, and it basically said, never before in history have 50 designers living in San Francisco between the ages of 20 and 35 years old uh, had so much influence on what a billion people are thinking and feeling and believing every single day when they wake up in the morning and they turn their phone over and they spend their time on a screen that's designed by essentially Apple and Google. That's a really stark way of putting it, that such a small group of people and really a very sort of homogeneous group of people that have a responsibility to, to an audience of that size. Exactly. Um, with per perhaps the exception of maybe the people who program the, the, net the TV networks in the 50s and 60s. Right, right. 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 Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy amount of, of power and control. And... Um, you know, I, I think honestly, even your brain are, isn't evolved to even really let that sink in. You know what I mean? The felt yeah. sense of that truth is not actually as pr like proportional to the to the to the ratios that we're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And so, anyway, this presentation ended up going um, viral at Google. I sent it to ten people, some of the you know my favorite kind of design thinker, uh, you know, really thoughtful people that I knew. And um, it, it ended up going viral. You know, in Google Docs, you can click on it and you can see the number of simultaneous viewers. Uh -huh. I sent it to 10 people. And when I went into work the next morning, there was something like 150 uh, viewers. And then the next day, there was 400. And when I went to, you know, on, to work in the morning on the Google bus, a lot of people had it open on their laptops. So it really became this thing. And, um, and it ended up creating this moment where people realized that we have a moral responsibility, an enormous moral responsibility to get this right. The question is, what does that mean? And so I was, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Andy uh, Burnt in Creative Lab, 
but in Google mm-hmm. Creative Lab, they, they, some folks in the Creative Lab basically had seen the presentation, offered to host me, uh, since basically it was, it was done not as a kind of frustrated, screw all this, I'm going to leave, but there was clearly a sort of sense of, you know, I was, I was prepared to leave before making that, that little deck. And uh, they yeah, had maybe, maybe a little Jerry Maguire moment. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, that's actually not that far from the truth. Um, not, not, not so, not quite so public, or maybe, maybe that happened digitally. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, emails rushed in from all over the company. If I do reflect back on it, I mean, there was a lot of resonance with it, and a lot of people wanted to help, and uh, and a lot of people liked it. And so I, I was, I was, it was really generous of Google and the Creative Lab to host me. So I ended up going there, and the title, Design Ethicist, Product Philosopher. You know, these part of this is is marketing and understanding what what gets people's attention and in, in a sort of self-referentially interesting way. Uh, but but yeah. it, it, it is the topic. It's basically how do you, as a product person or product manager, not just be a product manager, but be a philosopher. And what does it mean if you know that your choice, no matter what you choose about how Gmail is going to work, the product of that choice will steer what a billion people do. You know, if you make the default that it buzzes everyone's phone with a new, by email, with every new email by default, you know, with the notification, versus if you make the default that it doesn't do that. That's what a lot of people are just going to stick with the default. And so that, you know, which way should you steer people's attention or choices? And, and that gets into a much bigger conversation that's really, I focused on the last five years, which is what is ethical persuasion? Um, because the other part of this conversation is not just this sort of accidental steering of what a billion people are thinking and doing. But, uh, you know, let's be honest, we live in this attention economy and every app, website, media company's goals or incentives are to get you, get your attention as, as as much as they possibly can if the business model is advertising. And so, you know, what does it mean to uh, ethically be uh, in this race to get people's attention? And how do you organize that that city? So we can talk more about that. But that's, yeah, that's the story. That's interesting. Was that around the time of Google Buzz um, when you were doing this? Uh, That's funny. It's funny to anchor these things. Uh, No, it was after Google Buzz. It was was in the age of Google Plus. It was around 2000. End of 2000, very end of 2012 or early 2013, I think. Yep. I raised that because Google Buzz was just such a classic example. Like we used this in presentations all the time, talking about user experience and the choices that you make on behalf of a user. And I remember this issue around Google Buzz where there was this idea that you would create a social network and kind of pre-populate it all with everybody who had ever sent email to you and vice versa, and then make that list public. And say, here's your here's your social network, and just the unbelievable. I mean, I think there was a class action lawsuit, right? But yeah, the yeah. unbelievable number of people who were like, "You did what?" Right. There were people who got called out for having affairs. affairs there was yeah. like the sort of client uh, privilege with lawyers and all of that. That just all got anyway. That to me was one of the first times in this sort of nascent world of social networks where we realized, oh my God, like not only do defaults matter, but like we're making big decisions about what relationships are in contexts that we don't understand, right? That go much broader than, hey, well, it worked really well internally at Google, you know, so. And it's interesting because there's, there's examples like that where, you know, a new product gets released and it does that, but then no one sees the invisible water that they're swimming in. What design decisions are you floating inside of right now? You know, where you, where, you know yeah. where you wake up and you're, you're, the set of thoughts that you are thinking right now are the product of designer in probably Apple or Google uh, that made some choices. And, and you're see, you, you, that's the stuff that I think is even more interesting is the, all the invisible stuff. And that goes very deep. You can kind of take that to even a more spiritual matrix-like lens if you want to. But 
Yeah, yeah, I imagine it can. You have a lot of examples of that, like uh, uh, slot machines as a metaphor for a lot of the uh, notifications we get or the, the behaviors that we are enticed into doing. Yep. I think so much of, God, I, I think about this all the time, so much of interaction design is really designed around like the release of dopamine. You know, like I get people to be able to, to take actions because each one of those actions feels good to them. So tell me a little bit more about that. Some of these, what you call like the invisible decisions. I think you just coined a new great phrase, uh, Jeff, which is designing for dopamine. I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think because here, here's the honest truth. I mean, and this is the thing I think is really interesting. Uh, this thing that used to be called design, you know, which I think you and Adaptive Path, I mean, this classic practice of, you know, really smart, creative looking people sitting in a room thinking really deeply about what the flows and what's really good for people and what you know how something should work and the ergonomics and some deep thinking and you know all of that stuff you know in a world that's hyper competitive for attention we don't do design that's just for like what's best for people if you can't get someone's attention you have to you can't even get to the point where you're doing something that's good for people and so so designers are really no longer many of them designers um, they, they do once they kind of get people into their flow or something, but even then there's such a desire to hold on to people's attention that you have to use notifications and variable schedule rewards and the red dot and the, you know, a certain email schedule and certain copy and maybe testing copy. And it's reverse engineering of human beings that makes you even allow you to participate in the attention economy. Um, and, and so, you know, we, I, I would say I call this like the race to the bottom of the brainstem to get people's attention. And, you know, the lens for this also comes from, you know, B.J. Fogg's work. And I think he was doing talks at 500 Startups when you and I uh, had met. Yeah. Uh, I was actually in B.J. Fogg's uh, lab at Stanford, which is the Persuasive Technology Lab. And that, that's what gave me this, this different lens to see the word design. If, if, if instead of using the word design everywhere you used it, you used the word persuasion. You are persuading someone to do something, to feel something, uh, or to perform a behavior. Um, that, that's, that's so much, especially in a hyper-competitive world, of what uh, we're getting people to do. So you sort of took on a role. To me, it sounds like almost ombudsman, which is something that goes back to my, like my distant past when I was in journalism, which would be a position that was at a newspaper. You would have a person who was responsible for the the needs of the audience, of the people reading the newspaper, and would then publish, had the ability to publish in the newspaper when things, when the newspaper did things that, that should be called out. And you can see it today, like the New York Times has the public editor. And if you go look, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but you, if you go look, there's articles by the public editor, like going really into depth about things like using Oh, for you know, D Donald Trump says something, and then so the headline is going to they, they use the word lies in the headline, right? And that's like a huge deal, saying right. you know having the deal. paper of record say that the president has lied. And so then there was this you know long article about how they went through the decision and how they made it. Anyway, that's um, a bit of a tangent, but if that's what the role feels like. Right? Yeah, that that you might be sitting in between, like you're not accountable for business objectives. You're you're right. entirely Right. devoted to the, the, what is good for our customer base. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> I didn't know about that word um, until a couple years into doing the work. Um, and, uh, but but that, that is right. I mean, I think that's how at least I saw what I was trying to think about and do every day. And, and not in a self-aggrandizing way. I just mean that um, there, there really is a subtle way that if your 
part of any system or organization. You know, what is it? I think it's Upton Sinclair's line, don't ask someone to see something that their salary depends on them not seeing. Uh-huh. You know, the, any one of us, we're, we have motivated interests, every, sing, I mean, every single one of us, right? At different levels or parts of the stack of our life. But when you're working for a company, you're working on a product, you're working on a mission, which you've, say, raised venture capital for, um, it's very hard to see through your own blind spots. And so, you know, a company like Google, for example, you know, you have all these people building products and running around with these narratives and trying to recruit, you know, you know how it's like, you're trying to recruit people and get help yeah. from different teams and, and coordinating with different people. And you, you need to kind of constantly be selling. Everyone does this. And, and the question is, who can in that room ask the question, how would we know if we were right or wrong? How, how, what would it mean to truly stand for what's good for people? And what, what, what could we be missing? What are our blind spots? What are the things that we won't see that we won't see? There's no one whose job that is. Uh, there isn't enough time for it, frankly, uh, because we have right. to move so fast. Uh, and I actually felt really, in this weird way, kind of alone and isolated uh, as I was doing that. Because it's on the one hand, it's wonderful that, again, you know, you're that was not being really tied to business or product objectives. You're not, it wasn't, I didn't look at any graphs of any products saying... This should be this number should be higher. You know, there's never a number I was supposed to move. I, I did mostly consisted of a lot of research, but it's also a little bit of an isolating thing because everyone else actually is optimizing for some kind of number, whether it's their own performance scores or, um, you know, the the performance scores of a product or engagement numbers or, or something. And by the way, I think this is one also one of the symptoms of Silicon Valley that's kind of a problem is that just even culturally, if you look at the number, you know, the people who are usually 24 years old, 25 years old product managers right out of one of these top schools working at these tech companies, you know, their motivations are probably hang around Facebook or Google for a couple years, you know, put on your resume that you increased a couple of, you know, you increased a couple of numbers by mm-hmm. 25% on a product, and then uh, you went off to your next thing. And so that, but that goal or that objective isn't really, you know, they're not thinking for those two years, you know, how can I make the most biggest positive difference in people's lives, even though they would say that they want to, but that's not what they're measured by. That's not what their actual, you know, accountability loop is. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We use Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We use Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial. And when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, 
Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. So that's really interesting. Like take Facebook, for example. You're out of your university and you get this job at Facebook. It's not delusional to think that, that you'd get into that job thinking, I have the ability now to change the world. Like I think, frankly, that's one of the things, especially now that I live outside of San Francisco, that the whole world kind of a bit rolls their eyes at like, oh my God, everybody in the Bay Area thinks they're going to change the world. But you get into that situation and say like, we have reach beyond like unimaginable reach. And our mission is to connect people at that level. Like if you were to, you know, you hear Zuckerberg talk about that all the time. It is to increase transparency in the world, allow people to connect and, and, and feel and, and that the world will get better as we do these things. But the reality is what the product manager is going to be measured on is how many seconds per uh, session of video is being viewed. Yep. Like that's the metric that's going to get them a promotion or, you know, make their LinkedIn page look better when they go off to do their next thing. This is one of the big questions I have for you, which is you are right that designers are making choices on behalf of users. Absolutely buy that. But that accountability and responsibility only works if you're really empowered. And it feels like designers are so often handed a set of metrics that they have to move, even in the context of this, this big vision of changing the world, and they have no ability to participate in the decision of what metric we should be moving. You know what I mean? Totally, yeah. But, but I think, the, the, here's the interesting thing. Um, th so what you just said is the most important part, right? We, we say that our goal is to make the world more open and connected, but there's no... There's no number on our metrics dashboard that says, this is how much more open and connected we made the world. Or how would we know if we were actually right? How would we know if we're lying to ourselves? How do we know if we, we were making the world more open and connected, but there was way more negative externalities that were happening uh, you know, as a result of that? Right. You know, so so what's, what's scariest to me uh, in the last few years in studying persuasion and, and ethics and habit formation and all these hijacking techniques and design and all that, I've actually also studied cults. Uh, and how cults work. And, um, you know, there really is, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, just they're kind of just human dynamics. What happens when humans get into groups and there's a leader and there's a way in which we talk about what we want and we sort of feel like we're the privileged ones and we see things in a certain way? And, uh, you know, there, there's these, these kind of funny ways that blind spots emerge in groups. And because there's obviously evidence uh, for Facebook making the world much more open and much more connected, and that is a wonderful positive thing. That's true. But the fact that that is true often blinds people from what are all the other effects and, and that we need to be specific about what other effects we want. And this is where like the philosophy comes in. I mean, it's, it's so subtle, so easy to tell ourselves a story about what we're doing and how we separate the story from the phenomenology. Show me timelines of what for a billion, 1.5 billion people of what they're thinking, feeling, and believing in the actual like phenomenology of their life, their felt experience, like, you know, 
They're open their eyes, yeah. they're on Facebook, they're on the screen for 10 minutes. I wanna see a timeline of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what they're believing, and how those things line up to what the, what the Facebook product managers would, would say are making the world more open and connected versus people feeling lonely or people feeling stressed out or not breathing, for example, when they're scrolling. There's just all these subtle things. I mean, here's a positive example, just one, because I think it grounds it. You know how Facebook events, you know, it used to be that you get invited to an event from your friends. It says, Jeff invited you right. to da-da-da, you know, design night in London. And, you know, it'd say, so yes, maybe or no. So now you're my friend, right? I mean, I, we, I consider you a friend. And if you invite me, and let's just say I'm going to be out of town that weekend, or maybe it's even for your birthday, if, I, if my answer to you, the only choice on life's menu that Facebook is giving me is to say no. <laughs> right. And that's not how I want to say I can't go to your birthday party or your design event. Like, because I like you and I, that just sort of feels disrespectful. So in that one moment, for every single time, someone with this cultural value of like sensitivity towards how other people will hear you, you know, sees this word no on a button. They experience on their thinking timeline all these thoughts like, oh no, what's Jeff going to think? And what happens if, you know, uh, he, he misinterprets why I can't go? Then I feel stressed out. And then I probably, there's some portion of people who have to enact a set of behaviors like, oh, you know, you have to type in the box. Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. And so this entire phenomenological cloud appears on people's timelines of what they have to do, all a result of the title of a button. Now, Facebook, mm -hmm. a few uh, I think it was about six months ago or a year ago, changed the text of the button from no to can't go. And can't go, at least for people with this Western sensitivity value, removes a lot of that. Suddenly, I don't have to explain myself. I don't feel as stressed out. There's less incongruence between what I want you to think that I'm feeling and my actions and what you will, you will actually understand. And, and with that one choice, times again, 1.5 billion people getting invited to events, with their, you know, imagine different versions of this in different cultures. Maybe in Russia it's different. Maybe the directness is a good thing. But that, that is making a huge difference for what people are thinking and feeling. And just imagine, again, the scale of each of these tiny changes added up uh, over the course of a person's life. Do you have any speculation onto what Facebook's motivation to change that would be? Do you think this is a result of actual empathy? Like we uh, observed people, we heard customer support, things like that, and decided to make the change to create a better experience. Do you think there was a uh, business objective around that? Is there some metric around getting people to more events or right. something? Or That's a think? really good question. I think in this case, I would just imagine that some really smart designers got together and, and sort of recognize that uh, this might be causing people some stress. I mean, even in Google Calendar today, it still says yes, no, or decline, or something like that. Decline, mm -hmm. what, a, what, a harsh, mm -hmm. what a harsh way to say, I can't go to that event. Um, yeah, decline. what a business-oriented, yeah. <laughs> uh, it must be from like the VCAL standard ages ago. Um, no, I think in this case, it really was just probably right. Facebook looking out for people. And, and really, to give everybody credit, like, you know, there's designers everywhere who are thinking this way. But it takes work. It takes thinking. You have to be on the lookout for... Where is their stress? And I think, like you're saying, if for some reason making this design change caused people to use the product less, uh, you know, for example, you know, Facebook right now drips out notifications in this, you know, one at a time kind of way because it's actually better for them in conditioning people like a slot machine to go check it frequently. If they instead, for example, by default, batched the notifications into one daily digest or something like that, or only, you know, sort of helped you you know, get the minimal number of notifications that would be time well spent for you in your entire life, that would probably mean people using the product a little bit less, which would go against their business objectives of wanting to people to use the right. product as much as possible. 
And so that's a design change where like they might discover something that actually genuinely would be better for people, but they wouldn't do it because it would go against their business objectives. And I think this is right. whenever we discover this happens in a lot of different industries where you just realize there's some ingredient you're using in a product which was effective, but it might not be good for people. But again, you have to think really hard about what is that what's the difference there. And then, you know, just stepping back to the to the metrics again, this goes all the way back to to frankly Wall Street who values companies based on these metrics that are that are are I've noticed this in the past couple of years. It, it was really um, obvious to me in the Snapchat uh, IPO filing that came out recently, which is that we're not talking about monthly active users anymore. We're talking about daily active users. Yeah. And then I, I noticed Slack is now talking about concurrent users, like how many people are typing at the same time, oh, as, and they've crossed 1 million, they've crossed 2 million concurrent users, like not daily active, but like right this minute. And hmm. this obsession with repeat usage keep coming back, keep coming back, use it all the time, is literally how the market cap is set for these enormous companies. So at some point, you have to ask, like, what's a designer to do? And that's actually a really kind of pointed question I have about all of this, which is you find yourself in a position where I am feeling pressure as a designer to make a decision to execute a design that I feel morally obligated to speak out on like yeah. where where do they go how do we what do we do about that how does this idea of having some product philosophy about the greater good get right down into i'm in a meeting and i feel this is wrong well i, I this is so relevant and i'm so happy that we're talking about this and i i want every designer to to, to consider this um you know um i think some companies so, so I think right now, in a, in a weird way, we talked about the cult thing. I think in a weird way, we're, there's such a positive cult around techno-utopian technology always makes things better. Snapchat's always making things mm -hmm. better. Facebook's always making things better. And that, it, that kind of delusional fog blinds us to uh, this moral conscience that we might have, you know, somewhere subtly beneath the surface where we're questioning, is this really good for people? You know, if, if, if Snapchat, as this example I've used before, uses the the snap streaks thing, where they put the number of times you've gone round trip with, uh, you know, uh, any contact on your contacts list. So now you feel that you have to keep the streak up. This is what increases the daily part of daily active users, um, because literally you have to use it every single day and send a message to every person <laughs> who you want to keep your streak Let me up. For you just one second, because my meditation app has a streak feature that just informed me, like, if I meditate 30 days in a row unbroken, I get a free month. And I'm like, this, this, this is missing the point here. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this speaks, we'll, we'll get to that too, which is how the attention economy incentivizes everyone to play these games. And it's this race right. to the bottom of the brainstem right. to, to do whatever works. And if you use the technique that's yeah. the streak, then I've got to use it too. If you use autoplay the next video, I've got to use it and, let, and I'll die if I don't. But, but just in this one example, you know, if you're the designer, you ask, you know, mm -hmm. what do you do? So you're in that room. You're the designer at Snapchat. And it starts to eat at you in the inside that maybe this streak thing is really not good for people. And maybe especially it's not good for the kids who you know you're deliberately designing it for to get them to use it every day. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's documented evidence. This woman, Emily Weinstein at Harvard, um, uh, did a lot of uh, ethnography with, with uh, uh, Snapchat, younger Snapchat users and showing that they, before they go on vacation, they give their password to five other kids of their friends to make sure that they keep up their streaks for them because they don't want to lose it. So mm -hmm. now... You know, there's, there's a, this is wrong. I mean, I'm just going to say it. I mean, this, this is a, 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 I think a, a, a morally corrupt way to 
uh, implement a design decision, which is clearly in, in this case adding un, you know unnecessary stress to, to people's lives, especially those who are more vulnerable to as a, you know, teenagers or younger people, uh, more vulnerable to, sure. to these kinds of techniques. Yep. And now let's say you're that designer. There's a lot of reasons to say that people benefit from this, for example. I'm sure you could argue that there's some use of snap streaks, which has led to some amazing, impossibly great life outcome for someone who used it. Just like, say, someone at Tinder could say, well, you know, that 800th swipe led someone to meet the love of their life. And that totally could have happened. That's a real thing. I'm not trying to be facetious. Like, there's probably really positive things that can happen from these design techniques that would have never happened if you didn't do them. But that doesn't mean if you weigh it proportionally and you also look at your motivations when you're doing it, that your motivations to do features like this are not to help people. They're just to get people to use the product more. And, and so the, the first thing a designer is to say, where is that subtle gnawing feeling inside me that I don't feel good about this? Is that happening? Can I, can I identify when I'm not feeling good about the decision that I have to make? And can I amplify that feeling enough to admit that it's actually real and, and then voice it uh, neutrally and saying, you know, is this really good for people? Now, doing so, uh, like you're saying, I mean, I, said, I effectively did that when I was at Google. And it led to, mm -hmm. you know, I was very fortunate. Google's a large market cap public company that could afford to uh, keep me on and generously uh, let me do that research. That, that's probably a rare circumstance. But I think technology companies, as more and more designers wake up to this, um, you know, they don't, I think a lot of people have left a lot of these companies because they wonder, am I really helping people uh, make their lives better or am I just trying to get their attention every day? And that will create right. a kind of a, you know, a burnout effect on a lot of engineers and designers who, who will not want to do that every day, the more we're willing to see that that's the truth. And again, I don't see this with any accusation. I don't think there's any evil people here. I think there's simply perverse incentives. But I think what bothers me is the inability to see that this is true. This is actually a real a wrong thing that's happening. And we need to align the incentives so that all designers can get back to doing what they learned in school, which is how do we genuinely make life better for everybody? How do we make sure the incentives align with that? Tell me what you're up to now. You've left Google, yep. haven't you? Yeah. Well, so I left um, uh, Google because I, uh, you know, it was actually, ironically, you know, when it came to trying to get these changes into uh, some Google products, it, it's very hard as a, as a design kind of person inside the system to change the system that you're in. Just like you said, you know, what power do you have if the metrics uh, push in a different direction? And it wasn't the case that, you know, I was pushing for something and then someone said, no, 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 but we need the advertising revenue and we're not going to listen to you. That never happened when I was uh, at Google. But there's this subtle way that the inertia of the existing product culture and maximizing engagement and just the, you know, just the complex system that is um, these different massive companies that are doing their thing makes it really hard, to, you know, to, to change the system from the inside, uh, as is commonly said. It's not really usually a good strategy. Uh, at most, you can get a small 2 to 3% kind of uh, difference or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that very hard. So actually, I, I kind of gave this TED Talk on um, time well spent, uh, which this collaborator and researcher friend of mine, Joe Edelman, who was the CTO of Couchsurfing, and I kind of helped birth this way of thinking, in which the, the TED Talk is basically about uh, shifting the incentives of the tech industry uh, from maximizing time to instead uh, increasing time well spent, meaning... Uh, helping people make the choices that they would feel are lastingly uh, a net positive contribution to their lives and structuring the incentives so that the business models actually align with that. So you're rewarded the more you do that. So for example, 
So you can see the TED Talk online. It's now become something like a social movement for designers and for consumers. Uh, you can check it out at timewellspent.io. But it, the metaphor is it's like the organic food movement. So prior to the organic food movement, if you're a farmer and all the other farmers start putting this pesticide on their apple to make sure it's like the cheapest kind of apple. And you don't want to do that because you're, you're the one designer farmer who says that, that ingredient isn't good for people. But everyone else does it. And if you don't do it, your apple's just going to be more expensive. And no consumer is going to know why. And so they can't choose it because why would they choose the more expensive apple? Until there's like a label or there's this idea even that there's a difference between people who design their apples to be you know, as cheap as possible, even if it's not good for us, uh, to the ones that design it to be, uh, quote unquote, you know, more careful Better, better farming, more, better ecological practices, better sustainable practices, these kinds of things, uh, better on some set of values, and then a consumer can tell the difference. So time well spent is almost like the organic food movement for the tech industry in a subtle way. I think uh -huh. We think of it more as an ideology and less as a, it's a longer thing to make it a, a real full-fledged movement, but, but there's a lot of design designers and companies that are trying to design things just for helping people. For example, Flux, yeah. uh, you know, this app that takes the blue light out of your screen. Um, and right. on average, Michael Herf believes, who's the founder, believes that you're, he's adding about 15 minutes of quality sleep per night based on um, taking away the disruption to your circadian rhythms that happens when you have blue light in your laptop screen. And so, you know, he's got like, I don't know, uh, probably more than 10 million users or something like that times 15 minutes. That's uh, 150 million uh, new quality minutes of sleep in people's lives. So imagine right. in a time well spent economy, everyone is basically thinking about their product and their service in terms of the net positive benefit to their lives. And he knows he's not actually getting people to sit there on the screen fiddling or scrolling with flux every day or something like that, which would be eating at his net positive number. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's really just the benefit. And so that's interesting. Yeah, we're trying to just, uh, I left Google to try and promote more of this conversation than we're having right now. The food analogy is a really good one. You know, it kind of makes me think back to when I was a kid in the 70s, like eating processed food, TV dinners and hamburger helper and all that sort of stuff. I ate that stuff too, uh, yeah. Which, yeah, but which at the time was actually a very progressive thing. It was very connected to breaking up traditional gender roles and getting women out of the kitchen and into right. careers. And this was, right, microwave oven with canned vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Right. Was all was a, uh, like a political movement saying all of this efficiency that we're getting is going to make the world a better place. Right. And so we ate this terrible, terrible food right. as a result. But what's interesting is that, that it was very specifically designed, especially as they got better and better at it over the decades, to to be designed for the pleasure centers. Like the Cheeto is this remarkable thing that is absolutely designed to how our brains evolved for pleasure from food, right? So you, you, and you can't stop eating them. And they're designed to be addictive now. Like exactly. when you look at the processed food industry, like it's, I, I recoil. I'm just like, oh my God, how could you go in and do that every day? And that's why I think the analogy is interesting in that what started as this, we're going to change the world and we're being very progressive, kind of morphed totally. into, we are going to get you hooked on our food and you're never leaving. Totally. And, and you know, what a wonderful, I, I love that, what you just said. I, I haven't thought about the, um, the original kind of culture behind the drive of that 
uh, that food movement. Obviously, these things, like, no one's sitting there saying, gosh, how can we, like, ruin, you know, people's health and make the most addictive food possible? Like, that's never the case that these things start like that. Right. It's always this right. positive intention, which is why, again, this, like, this self-awareness and the ability to see our blind spots is, like, the most important thing. What are things that we're not seeing? But, but it's like you're saying, it's like, you know, B.J. Fogg's persuasion preference, you know, uh, techniques and uh, Niriel's book, Hooked, and all this playbook of, of persuasion that, um, you know, that I wrote about in that hijacking your minds piece uh-huh. that, you know, all, all of these things started off as ways to be more effective at, at, you know, helping people build more effective products. If LinkedIn adds the progress bar to filling out your profile, that's more effective at getting people to fill out their profile, which means that all these other things can happen. But then again, we lose sight of when LinkedIn sends all these notifications and emails and all this stuff, how much is LinkedIn really on your team every day to help you get the job you want? Right. Or increase your professional life versus just getting you to uh, read things and uh, you know add connections and come back and you know see some ads. Um, and again, not right. because not that there's anyone evil, but just that's that's how the thing evolves. That very notion of the progress bar, meaning your profile is not completed, you should be embarrassed by that. Like that's the impl- implicit underneath. Like, oh my gosh, everybody else's is done. Look at ooh, you're not looking too good yet. You're only eighty percent of the way there. Right? Totally, it's inducing social comparison, some shame, also some notion of like you're almost there. Don't get off the tracks. You know, you you're, you're just a little. You know, the nearness heuristic. You're just a little bit away from having a you know a little bit more things. And and there's sort of this cognitive ease thing, right? Like. You know, between all the choices that we can make in our lives of our projects we want to advance or the biggest questions that we want to look at for our, for our lives, you know, that's really complicated and hard work and ugh, that's, that's a lot of work. And oh, here, LinkedIn's giving me this really easy thing I can do with this one click or filling in this one part of my profile. I can go from 70% to 80% of my profile filled out. And so it's very effective at getting us to do all this. And again, it starts with good intentions. And LinkedIn would say that for the greater good, once we've got your profile filled out, there's all these other wonderful things that we can do. But again, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. Do the metrics at LinkedIn reflect how many people found the jobs that they were looking for with the least amount of time that they could possibly spend on LinkedIn? No, it's not. That's not what it is. And again, it's not because LinkedIn's evil. It's just that the business model is not aligned with what's genuinely good for people. So, you know, how, how do we across the industry move from an attention economy that's about maximizing engagement and time to really maximizing the net positive contribution in people's uh, lives and how, how to have the whole economy measured around that. I mean that that would mean that you could trust fall into the world and it would catch you with with like a ranking of choices that would be actually ranked all the time in terms of what's best for people. Um, this might sound more techno utopian Silicon Valley suddenly, but I, I think that's the way to think about like what we would want. Well, I th- I think there's examples of that. You know, I think in, in in some regards you could look at Apple and say their motivation is to sell you a phone. A profit center over there and gives them the opportunity to really focus on user privacy in a way that Google never can. Absolutely. In in some ways, I think the market could respond in ways that are have net positive outcomes if they are directed in that way. That's right. And and part of the sort of organic food movement metaphor is it takes consumer demand, right? So right. organic was created as a standard, uh, you know, long time ago. And by the way, just to name it. There's lots of problems with organic. There's greenwashing. There's people lying about it. Everyone says they're organic, and there's questionable total benefits about whether organic's actually so so be- so much better for people. Let's just name all of that. Mm-hmm. But the intention yep, yep. that there is a difference between you know just the race to the bottom to put chemicals at all costs, you know, that just to get the price down, 
is different, and I, that, that's the point about organic to mention. But you know, Walmart, for example, didn't start putting organic on their shelves immediately. It took this slower, homegrown movement of smaller farmers who saying, "We want to do this the right way." And once they surrounded the big companies with uh, all this evidence that the demand is there, then or, then Walmart put organic on their shelves much later, and that's actually how it happened. So the same thing has to be happening here, is and that's why you know I think podcasts like this. It's how do we inspire the next generation of designers? To, to be these on the early front of of what's of thinking about what's best for people and talking to each other and establishing design practices and getting really clear about moti- their motivations and their business models and 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 then surrounding these big companies saying that look people really want this they don't want to be addicted and you know distracted all the time or drawn into just the, the news that get the most clicks or outraged just because it works you know they they really want to have Facts of you know information sources they can trust and apps that are designed to minimize their footprint on their lives. Yeah, I, I agree. So I'm going to send people over to timewellspent.io. Um, it's interesting in that there's a lot of content there about what to do if you are a designer, but even if you aren't, how to live. I think a more uh, well. Not necessarily a, a better life, but at least there's steps there to a more nourishing media content and ways of using apps and just lots of stuff there. So that's one place. You've got a lot of uh, great writing on your website. Trist- is it TristanHarris.com? Yeah, TristanHarris, yep. TristanHarris.com. Yep. Yep. And then I guess, you know, we should follow you and Tristan Harris on Twitter, but that might be beside the point or contradictory. <laughs> but anyway. It's a paradox. Any, anything else people should look at to get to get more of this? No, I think I think this is really great. And and I think um you know, if people are interested, just sign up on, on the time well spent website for, for getting updates on the movement and how they can uh, learn more about events and things like that. Well, fantastic. I'm, I'm really behind it. I think what you're on to is so, so important. And I really appreciate the time uh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Likewise, Jeff. Thanks. Good to catch up with you, too. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.